Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hello everyone, do you know where your towel is? I sure hope so, because it's time for episode number 42 of the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Films discussion on the web. I'm Scott, the mostly harmless co-host. The Vogon captains Derek and Casey will be along in a moment to share with you some poetry. And what will these poems be about, you ask? Well, the subject is 1972's Vampire Circus, Casey's birthday pick for February 2015, a film that tells the story of a small village that is besieged by the plague that is visited by one strange circus. Now, we'll be back with our look at Vampire Circus right after this word from a new sponsor here at 1951 Down Place. Hey, parents, are you tired of having your wallet drained at that so-called vampire circus? Are you sick of that anemic feeling at the end of the day? The smell of all that garlic? Well, help is just around the corner. After a long winter, it's time for the 2015 season at Frankenstein Circus at Cushing Park. Come ride your favorites, including the thrilling Evil of Frankenstein roller coaster, the interactive shooting gallery Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and the fan-favorite Frankenstein Created Woman, where you are put face-to-face with some of the beauties created by the good doctor himself in a race to find your way out of the lab. And that's not enough. We have a very special concert to open the park for 2015. The one, the only Scott Baio will be here with his biggest hits, including What Was In That Kiss. How do you talk to girls? How do you talk to girls? How do you talk to girls? Oh, what's and the biggest hit from Joni Loves Chachi, Look at Me. I don't know what's come over me. You've got me hypnotized when you look at me. It's going to be a great summer, so bring your entire family to Frankenstein Circus at Cushing Park. This year, located upwind of the Curse of the Werewolf Water Park. Frankenstein Circus is a proud sponsor of the 1951 Down Place Podcast. Thanks to Frankenstein Circus for their support of the podcast. We'll be back with this month's discussion of Vampire Circus right after this. Hello. I'm Scott Morris, and will you be an angel for a helpless podcast host? Every year, innocent hosts are abused by the movies they are forced to watch, and they're crying out for help. Please visit tinyurl slash noshe2015 and join the 1951 Downplace listener community with a vote for a worthy Hammer film right now. For just one vote, You'll help the 1951 Downplace podcast avoid being beaten by films like Vengeance of She. Did you know that two out of every three Downplace hosts are wishing to avoid this film 
after being abused by the film She in episode number 10. Vote online now and you'll receive the gratitude of the 1951 Downplay staff and give them a chance to view quality entertainment. Thanks to you. Right now, there's a host who needs you. Your vote says, I'm here to help. I'm here to make sure that you don't have to watch The Vengeance of She. Please visit tinyurl.com slash noshe2015 today and learn how you can vote. Please vote right now. Again, tinyurl.com slash noshe2015. It's the 1970s. Hammer Films has enjoyed a long run of vampire films, Frankenstein movies, and a few other monster movies along the way. Well, the times are changing. You got to do something to kind of stay current, stay hip, keep people coming to the audience, keep the audience coming to the movies. The drugs were flowing. <laughs> and one of the movies that kind of came out of this 1970s period for Hammer was the surreal film vampire circus from 1972 and that's the movie we're talking about in this episode of 1951 down place i'm Derek m cook one of your hosts and my co-host co-producers scott morris and casey criswell are here the gang is back in town yay oh man i'm a little tired i went to that scott bayo concert last night it was awesome <laughs> <laughs> oh so Welcome back, for, Casey. Yes, thank you. It's been, I missed you guys last month, so unfortunately the day job rears its ugly head every now and then, so that was unfortunate. So how was your time with the tiger lady? Uh, my tiger, that time with the tiger lady is quite enjoyable. Thanks. <laughs> it helps put the, uh, the pain of the day job behind me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's see. I guess I'll dive in here because this is my birthday pick for the yes. month of February, even though we're recording it in March. So, um, but yeah, Vampire Circus, it's one of my first Hammer flicks that I came across. So, uh, I think the first one I came across was Vampire Lovers, then I came across this. So, it, you know, get, definitely gave me some high expectations for the world of Hammer films early on because this movie's got a lot of lovely ladies in it. Not to sound sexist, but, um, but we it's are, a great movie. Yeah. We, we are three dudes. So yeah. Vampire Lovers and Vampire Circus were two of the earlier ones for you. These are both 1970s Hammer films. So I'm trying to imagine if I had come to the Hammer films watching the 1970s flicks first. Because I came to the 50s. Yeah. You know, with Frankenstein and Dracula, that sort of thing. So. Oh, you are much older than me, so. <laughs> Asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not joining in on this part of the conversation. <laughs> so you saw uh, it on video man, you think? Or was it Oh, I saw it on DVD at one point, so <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it on video, thanks. I saw it on uh reel to reel. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't go to the theater to watch it? No. I missed it when it came out. Um so let's see. This one it's it set, it does set a high mark though other for other reasons just than the than just the ladies because this movie's got an atmosphere like like any other uh, Hammer flick so that's what's always drawn it to drawn me back to it over the years because it really kind of stands out because even in seventy two and even compared to Hammer's like movies from the fifties 
this is something way different. Even Vampire Lovers, which was one of my favorites, even though I know you guys have bad taste and don't like it as much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just got its own. It's got its own atmosphere. It's something that makes it feel like it's standing apart from any other title in the catalog. So it's really pretty great for that aspect too. I'll give you that. It definitely has a different feel, a different vibe than any of the other vampire movies that Hammer had done. There's a little bit of a, an experimentalist feel to it, an experimental feel to it. Yeah. Kind of surreal and, and some things happening that you didn't see in any of the other vampire movies that they did before or since. This was not the first time viewing for me. I had seen this years ago. And then, of course, when it came out on Blu-ray a while back, I snatched it up. In fact, this movie was a movie that I talked on the B movie cast about with Vince Rotolo and company a while back when it did come out on Blu-ray. So this is not the first time I've talked about this movie on a podcast. This was something I was eager to get to, and I, I'm glad you picked it. I don't know if I liked it as much as you did because of the whole taste thing. But Scott, this was the first <laughs> time for you, right? This is the first time that I've ever seen this film. Um, I had heard of The Tiger Lady. I knew a little bit about that. <laughs> but that's about all I knew about this film. And not to tip my hand too much, I I really appreciated the chances, that, for lack of a better word, that Hammer takes in this film. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. But I do like this story better when it was told as something wicked this way comes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Which is probably another reason I like this, because that's something wicked is one of my favorite movies, and there's definitely a hell of a lot of parallels between the two movies, so that may be something else that drew me to the atmosphere of this one. So That's a good point. Yeah, they're very similar in that aspect. Now, in all the reading that I did on this, and, and I went through a number of my reference books and, and checked out a number of articles, I didn't find any allusions to something wicked. I'm a little surprised by that. But yeah. there is a very strong vibe, uh, a relation to that story here. And, and something wicked, when did when was that written? Ooh, that's a good question. It's a Ray yeah. Bradbury story, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I want to say 40s or 50s, but I'm not positive on that. 62, so... Yeah, I would have been out there. Like I said, I didn't find anything that really talked about that, uh, what the movie was proposed to Hammer. What I did find is that Michael Carreras, the head cheese at Hammer, did say in a memo once he read the treatment of this that the movie was, quote, very, very bloody. I suppose okay for the rest of the world, but I dread to think what will happen in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that was James Carreras that wrote that to to his son, Michael. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. At least that's uh, the way it was in the Hammer Films, an exclusive biography. That's what it Listen said. Listen to that. Listen to Scott. It's so cute. He's come so far. Is this where? Is this our first official nerd off here? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie was presented to Hammer. They ended up shooting on a number of existing lots that had already been used in previous films, including Countess Dracula, which I still haven't seen, and Twins of Evil. They also use the church from Scars of Dracula and Horror of Frankenstein. So Hammer's still all about saving money. And thanks to their agreement with Rank Films, they also needed to save some time. So this movie had a six-week allotted schedule. Hmm. No more, no less. Hard cutoff. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, those. so those early 72 especially was a weird era for hammer mm -hmm. going into this because they i mean 
like we saw vampire lovers in the 70s so the hammer was trying something different they were still gothic but they were changing it they were making all their movies a little more sexier a little more racier things <laughs> like that a little more and, sexy <laughs> yeah a little more as they got into this and whatnot but then you compare it for me anyways if you compare something like vampire circus which is obviously an experiment on their part to see how it felt it weighs a lot higher for me than their other uh, attempt at experimentation in 72 when they came out with Dracula AD 1972, which ah. is not high on my list. Oh, so. see, I disagree. I love those movies. I love the, the 70s Christopher Lee Dracula films. I really do. Well, I, the, that's Dracula AD 1972 especially didn't sit well with me. Now, the you know, there's other stuff that came out in the 70s I'm fine with, but, you know, it's just a weird era for Hammer. Caroline Monroe, man. <laughs> I know. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut in here and say so far the only '70s Hammer film that I've enjoyed is Twins of Evil. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it wasn't an odd time for Hammer. I really feel like Hammer's heyday was in the '50s and '60s. I really do. I know they yeah. did some stuff before that, and we've talked a little bit about some of the earlier stuff, but. Man, once they came across the the hammer gothic feel that they're known for, I really feel like they hit their stride. But then, you know, the last forever, the bottom gave out. I don't know. When did the studio close down the first time? Uh, the first time, the, the last film from the first go around was actually released in the 80s, but I believe they sat on that film for a while. And uh, Elliot Gould was in that, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were coming towards the end. They did TV. They focused on television for a while. And they were relatively successful there, I think. But yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, I would say it's safe to say that this you're getting towards the tail end of the yeah. hammer, hammer legacy here, and they were definitely trying some stuff new. Or some, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. They were trying some new stuff. Uh, you know, just try and breathe some new life into it. So, but I thought I like that experimentation to, you know, for the most part, because it gave you something different and that feels like its own distinct era of hammer. True. It was, it was advertised as the 130th hammer film. I don't know if that's true. I haven't gone through and counted them all. Numbers are hard. Um, but (laughs) you know, so they've been doing it for a while and whether there was a little bit of attrition in terms of excitement when it comes to these kinds of things, or they were just trying to do some new things and the public wasn't ready for it. Don't know. It got mixed reviews at the time of its release over the years. It's kind of developed kind of a cult following. Obviously Casey's part of that cult. And it was one of the first ones to get a really (laughs) nice Blu-ray release. So Uh, I had another quote from somebody else who had read the screenplay. She left a memo or wrote the memo. The vampire circus introduces an element of beauty, color, magic, and excitement into an ambiance of sickness, fear, and death. She also noted that it had an almost pathological obsession with children victims, uh, which I did find a little odd. Uh, The person who wrote that memo was a script girl for Hammer named Nadja, and I believe her last name is Regin or Regin. And Scott might know her from something else. She was a Bond girl. Yep. <laughs> is, that, is that your Bond connection that you That's had? That's my Bond connection, yep. I, I still have three others. Okay. And yeah, Nadja was in Go, uh, Goldfinger and From Russia with Love, right? Yes. Do you know what she did? Not off the top of my head because I don't know what she looks like. <laughs> she played... <laughs> 
The IMDb says she played Bonita in Goldfinger. I don't know what that character is. I haven't seen Goldfinger in years. Bonita. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, she was a script girl. I, I, I agree with her on the, the kids. The kids part of it. That that was a little uneasy for me. You know, it was in the nineteen seventies. They were killing kids in movies all the time at that point, weren't they? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'd say it made it. Uh, it, it made it edgy compared to what they're. You know, in the past, all most of our Dracula vampire movies out of Hammer. You know, were the Count and or somebody. You know, the the fill in for the Count or whatever the story calls for, and then some damsel and whatnot. So it's something different. It's edgy. Yeah, it's a little shocking. I, so. I th- yeah, it, shocking is it, more than edgy to me because you've always got this. And Hammer's good at this is the sexy vampire, and how vampire vampirism is very sexy and everything. And then you've got them, you know, killing kids that just that you know a sexy vampire killing kids was just kind of uneasy for me. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. They didn't really sex him up when he was with the kids, though, so I guess it didn't bother him too much. Well, there was the the opening scene, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. I mean, as soon as he's done with that, that excites him enough to go right into a sex scene. One lust <laughs> must feed another. Exactly. Yeah. Which is pretty much how I start every morning after I have my breakfast. I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know. <laughs> Well, shall we talk a little bit about the story, or do you have anything else you wanted to talk about the production or behind the scenes or anything? Are we going to talk about any of the cast? We we can do that now, or we can. I mean, I mentioned some of them in the the piece that I prepared. Okay, because you know we've got to do my connections at some point. I didn't know when we we're going to put that in. Ah, right, go ahead. Why don't you want to do the connection? So James Bond connections. James Bond connections. I have three James Bond connections. Damn, look at you, overachiever. <laughs> the first one is the fact that the film was uh, done at Pinewood Studios mm-hmm. instead of Bray. So um, I think Bray had closed down at this point. Uh, the second uh, one that I have is uh, Ken Baker. Now, Ken Baker was a dubbing mixer on Vampire oh, Circus. dear God, really? <laughs> but he really? was... He I'm was, thinking script girl is a stretch. you like... He's the <laughs> dubbing person. This person brought a sandwich to set once, and he also fed the crew. And come on, really. <laughs> he hey. was he, he was in the sound department for seventy fours, the man with the golden gun, eighty ones for your eyes only, and eighty threes octopusy. <laughs> but if you're gonna hey, go, yeah. to, if you're gonna complain about a behind the scenes guy, I'll go on front of the camera for my last one. Uh oh, David Prowse. Ooh. Now he now, was he your James Bond or your Disney connection? He's Actually, both. <laughs> but he, of course, was the strong man here in Vampire Circus. But he also played a robotic Frankenstein's monster in 1967's Casino Royale. <laughs> the David oh Nibben spoof. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. I am what was thorough. that the movie he's known for? What's the movie who's known for? David Prowse. Clockwork Orange. There was that one little movie that like a trilogy or something that he was known for. No, it was Clockwork Orange. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that goes to my my Disney connection because uh, 
He was Mr. Darth Vader himself in Star Wars, <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Obviously not the speaking voice, but he was the man in the suit. That's Mr. Darth Vader to you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're dead. <laughs> My other two Disney connections, so the first is the director, Robert Young. He directed one episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles TV series. Oh, did he really? Season 2, episode 20, entitled Prague, August 1917, which was released in August 1993. Does Disney own the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles at this point? I don't know for sure, but they own Lucas, and they own the films, <laughs> so I'm not 100% sure, but... They own Lucas himself, the <laughs> man himself they now own. They own Lucasfilm. And my other Disney connection is Anthony Higgins, who played Emil in Vampire Circus. And this one, Derek should know. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's in Raiders. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's one of the uh, Nazis in charge of the dig site. He's a major gobbler? Yeah. He uh, gets run off a cliff. Exactly. <laughs> so those are my Star Wars, Star Wars. Those are my Disney and uh, James Bond connections for Vampire Circus. There was also a ton of Doctor Who references, uh, re- oh, ones, gosh, but yeah. I didn't even go into that one. But <laughs> it seemed like almost every on-screen person appeared in Doctor Who at some point. <laughs> what? What about our little dwarf guy, Skip Martin? What did he do? Anything? Um. What, what did he do that we need to talk about other than playing a dwarf or uncredited dwarf in a thousand movies? On the <laughs> other than being Derek's favorite character in this movie, I, I don't what? know. <laughs> He's in the 1974 Son of Dracula. Have you ever seen that? No, I have not. With Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr. Who I have not. <laughs> now oh, I, now boy. I want to. <laughs> it's It's not... As awesome and it sounds like it should be. <laughs> Is it as awesome as Caveman? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen Caveman in a long time. In fact, the only thing I remember about Caveman is him playing in the du- dinosaur dung. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing I remember. <sighs> well, on that delightful note... <laughs> From Dino Dung to Vampire Circus. All right. Here we go. So this is our new way of doing things around here. If you're new to the show, this is going to sound normal because, well, you don't know what to expect. But if you listen to the last episode, Scott and I talked about kind of changing up how we do the plot synopsis. Instead of getting so in-depth and not really giving Scott an opportunity to contribute to the conversation since he's the one doing the plot synopsis, we're going to kind of do it a little differently. I've got a few paragraphs that I've written up here. I'm just going to go through that kind of talks about the movie. And then we're going to do a roundtable with the three of us. So. Might be a more robust conversation. Hope people dig it. For all who are willing to pay the price, we invite you to go through the mirror of life. Dora! <laughs> Fifteen years ago, we thought we'd killed a demon, but he's been waiting to kill us. 
15 years, cousin Metalos. But now we are here to free you, to give you life. But must they all die? All! of Stettel is dying, many of the townsfolk are sick, and even the law of the land has isolated this community from the rest of the country. Anyone trying to cross roadblocks to leave town are strongly discouraged by being shot at. It's not just a plague that's, well, plaguing the town. It's also a curse called down on them by the vampire Count Mitterhouse. Fifteen years ago, the town was healthy, with the exception of a few missing children here and there, and the townsfolk had it in them to destroy the local vampire. They succeeded in one of Hammer's lengthiest pre-credit sequences ever, but as Mitterhouse, played by Robert Taman, gasps his final few undead breaths, he tells those who raided his castle that their children will die. Well, the town doctor, Dr. Kirsch, played by Richard Owens, was not present during that pre-credit sequence, but he's heard all about the vampire and the stories and blows it all off as a bunch of urban myth-type stuff. Well, what's wrong with the town is a plague, and he sets off to ride to the capital to get medicine. Whether he makes it past the roadblocks is irrelevant for the bulk of the movie, though, because the circus comes to town. The Circus of Night, which doesn't sound spooky or menacing at all, managed to find a way past the roadblock and gets to the business of circusing. They managed to take the townsfolk's mind off their troubles, even if somehow or other the local mayor, played by Thorley Walters, dies while looking into one of their magic mirrors. People start going missing, but cut to the next scene and the circus is still performing again, no big deal. We had a tiger lady dance, acrobats turning into or out of animals, a little person clown, and a pre-Vader David Prowse as the silent strongman. The circus troupe is led by a mysterious gypsy woman, played by Adrian Corey. We'll learn later that she may have a connection to someone in the town, specifically the local schoolmaster, Albert Mueller, played by Lawrence Payne. Now, Anthony Higgins plays Emil, who turns out to be a vampire related to the late Count Mitterhouse, and he seems to be in charge of exacting revenge on the vampire-killing town. Throw in some open-mouth-kissing brother-and-sister vampire twins, a bit more blood and gore than we've seen in a Hammer film up to this point, and a first-time feature film director who couldn't go over schedule even if he wanted to, and we have Vampire Circus. We'll see you next month here on 1951 Downplace. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Casey liked it, Scott didn't, and I'm in the middle. <laughs> All right, we'll see you. Done. <laughs>
Uh, I don't know. This movie, to me, the biggest thing with this movie, it's not necessarily the overall, uh, the technical side of it that makes this stand out for me. It's the story. It's the setting. It's the atmosphere. So um, back in the day when I started first getting into movies and, you know, getting fascinated by them is stumbling back across. my day when I yes. was watching reel to reel on the machine. <laughs> But the things that would always grab me were weird movies that, you know, you'd stumble across or something like that on cable that had like the oh, own- bullshit. The things that grabbed you were boobies. Well, that too. That <laughs> I mean, by the time I watched Vampire Circus, I was I was probably like 30 or something. So I was beyond <laughs> just boobies. So hopefully at that point you had seen a pair or two. <laughs> yes. I've seen a couple. It's um, strangely quiet here. <laughs> But anyways, this movie, when you first come across it, I didn't come across it on the uh, on cable itself, but it's one of those movies when you first sit down and watch it, it really strikes you as one of those movies that you catch, you know, surfing the cable late at night when you have insomnia or something. That's like how I uh, discovered Six String Samurai or something like that. So it's definitely weird. It's something it's weird enough. You sit down and start watching it. It really makes you think this isn't normal. I don't know. It's something with the gypsy atmosphere, but that they did a really good job. And now that we talked about it before, it's you know has some of the the elements of something wicked. I think that probably helps amplify that a lot. Well, you yeah. have the whole evil circus coming to town uh, vibe that something wicked this way comes. Now the the two stories diverge a little bit. I mean, Vampire Circus, they're you know basically wanting to kill the kids. Where in Something Wicked, they were just trying to you know, give people back some former glory and then taking, basically using them as slaves. Right. But there's definitely a vibe shared between the two films or two stories. And for the listener out there, they're on Vampire Circus. They're not just showing up just to murder kids wholesale because, hey, that sounds like fun. They're actually doing it to (laughs) uh, get the blood to resurrect their count. Who we saw his demise at the beginning of the film. In that very, very long opening credit sequence. Which is my favorite part of the entire film. It feels like (laughs) a complete film, doesn't it? Yes. It doesn't feel like anything's missing. The first 12 minutes of this film are, are really good. Yeah. You've got the little girl wandering in the woods and this woman coming up and leading her into the castle. And then the townspeople, the schoolmaster seeing this and the townspeople all want to attack the castle because kids have been disappearing. Plus it turns out that the woman is the schoolmaster's um, wife that he's not seen in a while because she's been seduced by the vampire. They all show up, but some of them are chicken out, but there's, whole attack scene. It's like an entire vampire movie in 12 minutes. Yeah. What I I really liked about the opening credit sequence is Thorley Walters is there. Like like I said earlier, he's the mayor and we know Thorley Walters is kind of a doddering kind of bumbling. Oh, what am I, you know, kind of character. But in this opening credit sequence, he seems just as serious as the rest of them. And I really liked and appreciated seeing Walters in a, in a more serious type position. So I enjoyed that. Now he does kind of revert back to a character after the credits 15 years later as he's gotten older and all. But I was going to say he still winds up being very Thorley, but yeah. it's okay. <laughs> oh, so Thorley. Well, I think <laughs> that's the, why we like him. <laughs> I, I I appre- a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I appreciated that because it showed to me that the events of 15 years ago affected him. Oh, it works perfect. Yeah, it's great. Definitely. 
except now I want to Photoshop Thor Lee's head on a Thor movie poster. So <laughs> No, it does show that the 15 years affected him because the town does kind of go to hell afterwards. Thor Lee, you're joking. <laughs> I'm not joking and don't call me Thorley. <laughs> so I appreciated that. I, I really like the opening bit. It does feel like a complete film. And uh, Now, who played the schoolmaster's wife? Which one? Uh, well, <laughs> which one? Um, at the very beginning? Yes. Anna? Is that, that who it was? Been? I didn't catch her name. <laughs> Do- Dominie Blythe? Sure. Yes. Dominie yes. Blythe played Anna Mueller. Another very pretty lady. <laughs> and I don't, this is when, um, I hate to talk about this without sounding like, you know, dude, dude, but <laughs> dude. this is when, as we said before, the 70s was when Hammer started to experiment and get uh, more racier in their films. And there is a lot of flesh in this movie. Experiment and got more naked. Yes. There really is. And, this follows this uh, dovetails very nicely, as Scott might say, to hey, into slot B into uh, vampire <laughs> lovers for that era, if that's what you're into for a hammer flick. It it doesn't hold back, and having that coupled with the scene in which the kid is killed at the very beginning by the vampire, who seems to be in some sort of throw of ecstasy while he's doing it to her, the yeah. killing the kid, not the other one. Yeah, it's very unsettling. Now you, you mentioned, uh, Anna Mueller. One mm-hmm. problem I had with this film is what happens to her? I mean, she's the, the town people whip her, throw her back and she escapes back in the castle, goes down to the crypt. The castle starts to explode and she runs off out of a back secret entrance. Mm-hmm. I thought when I'm watching the film that she was the gypsy woman later yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Is she? Is, are they the same character? I think they're supposed to be because there is one moment where Emil tells the other vampire people around that Dora. They, they're going to get Dora and her. Uh, let's see, which one, he says the gypsy woman, or he points to Adrian Corey and says her mother will make her take the cross away. That's Dora what, being Anton or the uh, schoolmaster's daughter. So I'm wondering why they got two different actresses. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it was a time thing, budget thing, or what, but yeah. it was confusing. But I definitely took that as supposed to be her because as he was dying, he was he said something about the night circus, so he gave her the idea. So I just automatically assumed she was taking off to enact that idea. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I thought so, too, but then the more I watch the film, she doesn't quite look the same, obviously, since they're different actresses. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So right. I'm wondering if she went and got uh, Emil, which was uh, the Count's cousin, I think. Yeah. And it was Emil's idea to um, do the circus to get the kids to f- carry out his um, cousin's last wish. Anna just never showed back up. So I was kind of confused. There's there's a few relationships in this movie that confuse me. That's one of them. There's a few things in the movie that are a little confusing, and I, I would blame that on the shooting schedule that they went over time, and there was just no wiggle room. There was no budging. You know, you had to cut around what you ended up with by the time you were done, sir. So, you know, get your movie done, Mr. Robert Young, and call it good. And I wonder if there are a few connective pieces of film here, some connective tissue that didn't get explored or even shot. 
And I wonder if that might have been made more clear if he had had just an extra day or two, depending on what they had to cut around. Yeah. And you never know what happened in the editing phase either. True. There could, they could have made some bad cuts there that made it feel choppier. True. It did get released in varying lengths across the world. I think what we have on Blu-ray right now is a complete version of it, but who knows? Well, you mentioned the Tiger Lady. Can we talk about the Tiger Lady? Sure. <laughs> There's a Tiger Lady. <laughs> yes, there is. Speaking of taking chances and showing a lot of flesh. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of flesh here on display, and it happens pretty early in the movie, earlier than I remembered. Yeah, it's got to be, what, 20, 25 minutes into the film? Yeah, it, it happens yeah. pretty quick. And there was enough flesh in this scene that you actually had to, you know, the first time three had hit reverse to say, oh, my God, did they go all the way? Yeah. <laughs> How many times did you possibly race? <laughs> <laughs> I was watching there's, closely this time. <laughs> there's this frame by frame feature. <laughs> <laughs> Might have worn out a battery on my remote control. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's basically the woman is wearing body paint. To paint yeah. her up to look like uh, the tiger. And what color is the tiger? Green, blue the, and gold, or black and blue? Or the tiger <laughs> is black and orange. The tiger lady oh. is not. <laughs> Are you sure it's not orange with black stripes? <laughs> There's clearly a filter on that, right? <laughs> oh man. That one was the weirdest one as far as – so there's a lot of these things with the – and I'm not talking just the dance. The dance is its own thing. We'll get to that in a minute. But like with the all of our transformations with the people that were coming back and forth as animals and people and stuff like that, why they had her come out green, I don't know. Well, I don't think you said this for the recording. I think we were talking before we started recording, Scott, when you said that – she doesn't seem to transform at all on screen. You don't see the transformation. You see, right. a, well, and you don't even really see a lot of transformations here anyway. I actually found that to be the, mis, the most disappointing element of the vampires is that I guess we're supposed to believe that they're turning in from turning from bat to email or from pan. I'm sorry, panther to email and bat to these acrobatic sister brother twin lover things. But you don't see anything. It's a real cheap kind of throw the animal at the camera and then have somebody else jump down kind of, ah, it's just a terrible transformation for me. Well, I you, get it. Save money. But you don't see that happen with the tiger lady. Instead with the tiger lady, she comes out, she starts dancing and you just keep cutting back and forth between her movements and the tiger movements that are oddly in <laughs> sync with each other. Which didn't make sense to me is if she was that tiger, what was in the cage then? Yeah. A naked tiger. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> well, and was she even a vampire? Because we don't really, I don't think she was. I'm not sure that the tiger and her are one and the same as the way the panther and Emil are. Right. Because they don't oh, yeah. show, yeah. I mean, what they do is they show the panther jump on a couple of boxes or something and then jump to the right and there's like a circus tent or part of it that will block the shot a little bit, and then a meal jumps down. So obviously they're in, uh, inferring that the panther is turning into a meal. Right, and they do the same thing with the acrobats and the bats. But then you've got the tiger, and then the tiger woman, which I'm assuming they were supposed to, the tiger was supposed to transform into her, 
but they show both of them at the same time. They kind of during that dance, they'll go back like like Derek said, showing the the tiger mimicking what the tiger woman is doing, and then you've got the orangutan that never <laughs> goes anywhere. They, is they it sh- an orangutan or a chimpanzee? A chimpanzee. It's a chimp. Is a chimp yeah. okay? They never show him changing into anything. Yeah, you know, and then uh, later on, he's one of the first ones that gets shot. Yes. Injustice. For no reason, Thorley. He's just a chimp hanging out watching the people. I, I boom, he's in, they're in his face. <laughs> I'm wondering if he was one of the scenes that they never got to, that they were going to have him transform into something. Yeah. Or I would which, think so. You would, have, you would think they'd have to because they had all these other transformations going on. So that you'd think there had to have been somebody that was going to end up being the chimp. Well, so, and he and Michael, Michael seemed very upset. Michael is the dwarf, played by Skip Martin. Michael seemed very, very upset. More upset than the others that the chimpanzee had been killed. So was the chimp and Michael, was they going to transform into each other? They were connected somehow? I don't Because Skip, or Michael wasn't a vampire, was he? No. Yeah, I mean, the vampire circuits, they're not all vampires. In fact, there's only a handful of them. If I remember right, if I, now that I think about it, there's Emil and the, the acrobats. The twins, yeah. That's about it, isn't it? Yeah. That we actually see as confirmed vampires? They're the yeah, only I ones that so. put the uh, dime store fangs in, yes. That's true. <laughs> and, and we've mentioned the twins a couple times. That's another one of the relationships that I didn't quite oh, God. understand. Yeah. In the beginning Creepy. of the film, in that 12-minute um, Mini intro, movie. there's the little girl that gets killed. Am I the only one that thought that the woman of the twins looked like that little girl grown up? I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that either. Because I was thinking, well, she's now a vampire because she got bit, but they don't ever show anybody that gets bit returning as a vampire. And I didn't know then, are the twins, are they the product of the original vampire and Emma or Anna? Is it their kids? Sure, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Now, I have I have a lot of questions about the rules of vampirism in this film. Anyway, I think Hammer Films did too. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, and I commented on this when I was on the B Movie Cast a couple years ago about it. This movie, it feels like Hammer didn't really stick with even the rules that they had established over the years. And I don't have a problem with that at all. No, I don't either. Yeah. But it just seems there are some inconsistencies within the movie itself, though. Specifically involving those twins. The the final fight with the twins. Before in a they church. Finally, in a church. That's the thing. So we do establish in the movie that the cross is bad. The vampires can't handle the cross. Yet, as the twins are chasing Dora around her home, they end up in the chapel and the twins have absolutely no problem going inside the chapel and hanging around and chasing after Dora. It isn't until Dora hides behind a big cross who hap- that happens to be in the chapel itself, one of many cross representations in the chapel, that then they freak out and realize, oh, shit, we're in a church. <laughs> so there's no problem there. And, and that, that really bugs me. And it still bugs me a little bit. And uh, I guess the director kind of had a problem with that too. But At the same time, I enjoyed the uh – Corsican Brothers-esque uh, <laughs> outcome. Yeah. Well, that's another question I have, because they, they bring that up early in the film when they showing when they show the, the and I'm 
apologize, I don't know the twins' names, but the female one sticking her arm into the tiger cage, and that looks like the tiger's starting to gnaw on her arm, and <laughs> she's not complaining whatsoever, and her brother is screaming in pain. But then again, she pulls her arm back, and it doesn't look like anything's happened to her arm. So but, later on, when something does happen to her... and But they show the, the brother has, like, scrapes on, her, on his arm. Mm-hmm. But when the cross falls on her, and they show the hole in the brother, shouldn't she just be pinned down by the cross but still alive? If the pain is transferred to the right. twin... No, you're right. I agree. Yeah. So I have a quote from the director himself. This is from the Hammers Film Legacy book by Wayne Kinsey. came out last year referring to the church set when he walked in. I remember being horrified as I walked in the door and saw that because I had wanted a Russian Orthodox kind of church. And they had proceeded to put crosses all over the place. Fortunately, you can't see it too much. Well, you, you kind of can. The whole reason to tear of suddenly freezing in horror because you see one huge cross looking down at you, which breaks and comes down on you, would have been lost. Makes you realize the horror I felt when I first saw it. The poor vampires wouldn't have gotten through the door. So, I mean, he was aware of it too, but it sounds like he wasn't really involved in set design that day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that bugs me. That whole sequence bugs me. If you're going to establish the religious iconography is a problem with vampires you can't have them chase you into a church you just can't well, this so th- says me the vampire police <laughs> <laughs> well I, I kind of applaud Hammer for taking some chances on their rules of vampires and like I said I don't have a problem with it I think that's something that they were even introduced in Captain Kronos different right. vampire rules that they hadn't explored in their earlier Dracula films mm-hmm. what this film was missing that I think would have cleared some of this up is not necessarily be Peter Cushing, even though it would have been awesome to have Peter Cushing in this film, but you're going to say Scott Bale is missing Scott Bale, (laughs) but some, (laughs) some vampire hunter or someone who's knowledgeable in the vampires that can explain the vampirism rules that this film is following to the members of the town, which would also explain it to us. I think that would have gone a long way to improving this film. Because you had, they're playing with different things. We always, you know, one of the things vampires can turn into bats. I never heard they could turn into big jungle cats before. I had heard the shape shifting stuff. I mean, they turn into wolves and, you know, shit like that. But it would have been nice to have that discussed a little bit more in this film. You know, even if somebody just starts the movie, you know? Even if somebody just starts saying, well, according to legend, you know, vampires can turn into any animal. Yeah. Which, if you go back far enough and you start looking at some of these old legends, the shape-shifting stuff does get attributed to vampires and werewolves. Werewolves, and in, in some cases, werewolves are actually related to vampires in a weird undead kind of way. So that, mm. well, I can understand. It would have been nice to establish it in this film. Exactly, because they're now relying on people to be well-versed in the myths and legends of vampires coming to this film. And I would imagine most of the people that went to see this film in the theaters were familiar with what Hammer had already done for vampires and the rules they set up there. Mm-hmm. Although, to be fair, this is what, 1972. There's no VHS. There's no DVD. It's not like people 
just saw Horror of Dracula the weekend before because they happened to have it at home and had a viewing party. Right. You know, it is a different time, I suppose, in the pop culture. I don't know. At least in my mind, too, going through the Hammer Dracula flicks and whatnot, it's pretty easy for me to, if I don't see Christopher Lee in it as Dracula, to separate it from any kind of vampire canon. I don't know why. So, like, the fact that it's different, I can dig it. Well, like I said, I I, I kind of like some of the chances that they took in this film. I just wish it had been better explained. Yeah. I just wanted consistency in the film. I just wanted a few things pointed out in the movie itself. It doesn't have to be slavishly in line with Brides of Dracula, for example, and Captain Kronos or any of these others. It, it just I wanted a little bit of consistency. The church thing still bugs me to this day, and I don't – it bugs me more than the, <laughs> the the girl, the twin couple, looking like she's about to have an orgasm every time she's on screen. <laughs> the way she's kind of gyrating back and forth, and oh, that yeah. was uncomfortable. <laughs> I get I get right off the church scene pretty easily, though, as as a product of editing. You're wrong, because <laughs> I would hope that there was something more to the story that led us to that to that yeah. church and whatnot. Because I mean, this movie is only what an hour twenty three minutes. Mm-hmm. Something to that effect. So there's obviously a lot, I think, cut out of here. So maybe we lost the element that got there. It makes it feel disjointed, yes. But at the same time, it's easy. Just seeing the other edits and cuts and holes that they're in here, that one didn't stand out to me that much. You know, speaking of edits and cuts, there was some bit of screenplay involving this particular building. This is a chapel in their home, but it's also the school where the schoolmaster is. Well, school mastering, and we don't see any of the other students ever. We don't even see this, the school set. But in the screenplay, there is some uh, material that was left out of the final product of seeing the school set and some of the other students. And that kind of sort of becomes important, or at least mentioned, because I guess the vampires killed them all. <laughs> well, there was <laughs> the one point. scene where Emil goes upstairs. Yeah. But uh, you were talking about things being cut. Uh, according to, again, going back to the Hammer Films biography, exhaustive, bi- exhaustive filmography, excuse me, uh, David Prowse was actually quoted in 93 saying, the trouble with Hammer was that you had to get it done in the week, in the six weeks. If you hadn't finished it, you had to cut it according to what you had filmed. When the time ran out, we were, there were still scenes that hadn't been shot, so Robert had to cut around the missing footage to finish it. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like even back when the film was being made, they had plans for other film, other scenes to be shot that might have fleshed out some of the things that we're having issues with now. It's just they ran into that end of that six weeks and they had no more time. Everything that I read seems to imply that that wasn't necessarily Hammer's call, but they were working with Rank Films at the time, and Rank Films were the ones that were hard and fast. Six weeks, no more, no less. That's the implication that I'm reading. I don't know how accurate that is. But for whatever reason, they only had six weeks. And this is an ambitious movie for a first-time feature filmmaker. This is his first go-around doing feature work. He'd done a short documentary before this, and that was it. So, I mean, it's pretty ambitious to try to cram all this new kind of experimental storytelling and surrealness into a feature film if you've never done a film before. So I don't know if there's a little bit of inexperience there that led to them falling behind schedule. I kind of agree with the overambitious thing as well. Uh, you know, you're you're going to run into problems 
trying to get this type of vision onto film. And I'm sure that led to multiple retakes on a lot of things, Mm -hmm. which ate up the time. It does make me wonder if they shot that opening credit sequence first because it feels the most fleshed out. Yeah. It almost makes you wonder, too, especially since we see uh, the character of Anna, the actress change and stuff like that. It almost makes you wonder if that opening sequence was planned for something else. Yeah, potentially. It would explain why the actress has changed. It does have this kind of like James Bond opening feel. You know how the James Bond movies have those cold opens. Like the end of the last adventure right before the regular adventure starts. It has that feel to it to me. Yeah. What did you guys think of the special effects? We've already mentioned a little bit about the lack of the transformations. But what about the scenes where they show the bats? (laughs) Oh, man. It doesn't look that – well, a couple of times I thought the bats were fine. But then a couple of other times it looks like they've just been burned into the film and not very well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There's a scene towards the end where they turn into a bat and it's obviously just superimposed over the scene they were shooting. Yeah. There was no, not a whole lot of effort at all put into that, I don't think. I'm, I'm wondering if that was another victim of running out of time. Well, unless Bowie was kind of the special effects guy on this thing, and he'd done a lot of work for Hammer, and he's good, so I don't know what happened there. Well, I wonder if he was more doing the blood effects, because I thought some of those were actually decently done. They were yeah. decently done, and wow. Yeah, the blood effects and like the stakes, stuff like that, I thought were all well done. And the decapitation. I was, I was surprised by a lot of the gore when you find when the little guy God, is that derogatory? When the little guy brings the people out of town to try to sneak him by the roadblock and then leaves them out in the middle of the forest and they get killed and they find their body later. You don't spend a lot of time on them. You don't dwell on them too long. The camera doesn't linger, but they are pretty torn up, and it's pretty bloody and gory for a Hammer film. Even I thought it was a, I was a little surprised. I got a really odd vibe off that scene. It seemed like more of a modern film in the way that the attack was shot because it was a a bunch of quick cuts like a lot of action Mm -hmm. movies do today. But it was very violent. Yeah. Something I hadn't seen in in the Hammer films that we've watched so far. Yeah. To to that level. But I I, I liked that and I I really liked the decapitation scene at the end. That was cool. The way it was done was really cool. That was cool. I liked that. And I didn't. I even thought the flopping around head afterwards didn't look awful. No. Sometimes the heads look a little static. And I think this was actually his real head and he was in a – I don't know how it was done. I don't care. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> Not that they really chopped off his head, but they actually built a hole in it. You know what I mean. He, he was under the casket with his head stuck up through it. That's what I'm guessing. But it looked good. And I really appreciated the gunshot. So as somebody who grew up thinking he was going to be a filmmaker when he grew up and doing special effects and that sort of thing, I always struggled with gunshot special effects as a kid because, you know, a kid growing up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, is not going to have access to squibs. Besides, who's going to sell an 18-year-old a bunch of squibs in Cheyenne you know, in, the, in the early 90s? So nobody's going to do that. So I had to make my own out of Black Cat firecrackers and model rocket detonators, which isn't safe. Don't do it, kids. Um, <laughs> And I always struggled with trying to figure out a way to make a bullet come out of flesh and make it look good on video in the student movies that I was doing and that sort of thing. So when David Prowse, when Darth Vader takes a bullet to the gut and it pops out his back the way that it did, that was impressive to me. I was like, wow, that's cool. That one shocked me. Yeah. How well that was done. 
That was awesome. And it, and it was done without explosives. It was done with, well, I mean, excuse me. It was done without, it was a very physical effect. It was very non-fancy the way they did it. It was just, I imagine somebody going in there and, and using their hands to craft this thing. And it just felt, felt real to me. I really enjoyed seeing Darth Vader get his back blown out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was really well done. The combination of the practical effect, which was well done. And I thought the acting, I mean, it really felt the, the way he, his whole body shook when it happened. I, you know, I thought he, both parts were really well done. That, like I said, watching that and, you know, they point the gun at him with this old style pistol and I'm thinking, oh, they might just have, you know, they'll show the bullet hole in the front with a little bit of blood falling out and he'll keel over. But no. <laughs> yeah. That they show I really enjoyed. Half his back being blown off. It was very well done. I really enjoyed that. And, you know, speaking of David Prowse, I was joking earlier he was in a Clockwork Orange and he is. I don't remember him from Blockwork Orange. So, I mean, I remember him from, obviously, Star Wars. We're children of the 80s here. So we know Star Wars. We know him from that. And then he's also in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell is the monster. He was an accomplished body actor. You know, I don't yeah. remember him as a speaking part in Clockwork Orange. And maybe that's because he just wasn't good when he started talking. I don't know if there was something when he was just a strong silent type. And he's not doing his own voice in Star Wars. So, you know, he's got the movements down and he just, as a physical presence, he brings a lot to the table. So I really liked him. Yeah, he was a former bodybuilder, so. Yeah, well, yeah, you can see that. I'm surprised that he was never used as a a henchman for a Bond film. Because he could be like Jaws, that type of character, pretty easily. Mm. Now, you mentioned him being in Clockwork Orange. He's not the only person in this film that went on to do Clockwork Orange or whatever the order is for the two films. Yeah, the, the gypsy woman. Yeah, she she plays the in Clockwork Orange. She's the one that gets uh, raped by McDowell. Adrian Corey actually reportedly had it out with Kubrick over that scene because Kubrick wanted to shoot it over and over and over again. And rather famously, she really got in his face about it. It's like 20-some <laughs> like, times. Yeah. Like, you don't need to do this so many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, what else is what else is there we should talk about the film? What, what do you think of the there? music? You're the you're the sound guy. I thought the music was okay. Um it didn't stand out as something that is like super fantastic. Um I thought it was effective. I am a little surprised it didn't go a little more circusy with some of it. They really seem to walk the line between um, 70s horror film and throwing back to some of the more James Bernard-like sound. And I'd heard the music repeatedly because it does, or at least a theme or a suite from it does appear on a number of Dracula soundtrack compilations and Hammer film compilations. But to me, it's just, yeah, it's by David Whitaker and... It, it is what it is. What, what did you think? It didn't make an impression, impression on me either way. I was expecting more of a circusy feel to the soundtrack. Yeah. And he, if even not uh, circusy, <laughs> uh, gyp, uh, like a gypsy flavor would be nice too. Yeah. Casey just sent us a picture on Skype of Adrian Corey. Is that from Moon Zero Two? I believe so. Yep. She was in Moon Zero Two as well, which I can't wait to talk about here on Down Place someday. 
<laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Moon Zero too. I haven't. Have you seen it, Casey? It's been ages. I don't really remember details, so it looks amazing. I just judge it from the costumes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fan edit, a fan trailer edit of Moon Zero Two using the music from Inception <laughs> that makes it look really cool. I don't think it's probably going to be nearly as cool when we finally get around to it. But, but there's still time in the listener pick poll, isn't there, ladies and gentlemen? If you want to vote for Moon Zero Two, I'm just saying. Vote for that. Yes, please do. You'd rather see Moon Zero Two than Vengeance of She. Yes. Even though you've seen Moon Zero Two. Yes. Wow. Hmm. You remember I like sci-fi but more than I like horror films. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Anyway. So yeah, music, meh, it was all right. But like I said, it didn't make an impression on me. I don't know if that's good or bad, but yeah. I, I wasn't humming any songs after watching the film. You couldn't sing Vampire Circus to it the way you could do all the James Bernard movies? <laughs> no. <laughs> that would have been great. That's what we needed. Yep. I was expect like I said I was expecting that little more a fantasy feel because this this film to me isn't I know it's supposed to be in the gothic time frame but it's more fantastic than gothic. Yeah. I mean Terrence Fisher always called what he did, you know, fairy tales for adults and this one does have a fairy tale kind of pied piper kind of feel to part of it. But <clears throat> I don't know. Oh, I'm just clicking around here um, on the internet as we discuss. But uh, I've discovered now I remember where I remember Adrian Corey from, oh, yeah? which is uh, Madhouse with Vincent Price. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. So, uh, yeah, we got a Vincent Price connection there. Okay. She was Faith Lay. Not too long after this flick, so. Well, Michael Skip Martin was in The Mask of the Red Death with it's in price. Probably as an uncredited non-union dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> so does this mean we've got to start having our Vincent Price connection? You know, we might be able to pull that off, especially from the 70s, because he did a lot of film work over there. <laughs> at that point, he was doing some amicus work. Probably won't be nearly as fun as Scott's James Bond connections, especially when he brings in the dubbing editor. <laughs> Hey, I'm thorough. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> I was pr- I was proud of the David Prowse one myself. That is a good call. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned the staking and the special effects. I do want to comment that I didn't like the stakings so much. I mean, when he's just sitting, when he's laid out, he's already got a stake in him, fine. But I feel like for all the effort that went into making the gunshot on pre-Vader look awesome. You'd never really spend a lot of time seeing the stakes go into anybody. No, and, yeah, definitely. And so much so that when the first count gets staked from behind and you, they then cut to a shot where he's got the stake sticking out of the front of him, there's nothing coming out of the back. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he didn't go all the way through. But well, he had to have gone all the way through if he went from the back to get there in the first place, you know? <laughs> and, and, unless he put the stake and his fist into the vampire. <laughs> well, there's no blood. <laughs> True. There's no blood uh, either. Yeah. Uh, 
that's especially uh, disappointing too. After we've watched years of uh, Hammer flicks before this, especially vampire flicks, mm-hmm. and you see some of the staking scenes, and they are very graphic. Yeah, and you watch them go in and everything like that. So you kind of wished that you would have seen them do the same thing. Yep. Oh well. So this is one of your top five, Casey. Oh uh, yeah, I enjoy it because of the atmosphere. So yeah, it it's. It's not one of my top five here. It's, it is what it is. I'm glad I have it on blue. The Blu-ray is awesome. Where do you fall on it, Scott? <laughs> well, like I said, I've said a couple times, I really appreciate that Hammer took some chances with this film. And there was parts of the film that I really enjoyed. The, the pre-credit sequence, the 12 minutes, was awesome. Really drew me in. The rest of the film, what I was really missing, I think, is... There's not a central good guy and a central bad guy in the film. Ah, yeah. It's more of two camps that are kind of opposing each other. For a time, on the on the bad guy's side, Emil seems to be leading it. At times, it seems the gypsy woman is leading it. For the, the good guys, sometimes it feels like the uh, school teacher is leading it. Sometimes it feels like the doctor's son is the leader. Sometimes it feels like the doctor is the leader. I would like to have had at least some sort of people that were consistently leading these groups that were against each other. And I also would have liked somebody there to explain, like I said earlier, how vampires, vampirism is supposed to work in this film. That is something that I was going to comment on. I'm glad you brought that up. There doesn't seem to be a point of view character here. There doesn't seem to be somebody who's the hero. Who, who are we supposed to be following here? I, I, I actually think the doctor should have, or could have been our point of view character here. But then he's gone for... But he's gone. Yeah, yeah. he takes off. Because <laughs> there's this plague that really... I felt like those plague story elements were kind of superfluous to what we were supposed to be seeing here. I don't know. Screw you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. I'll be back with medicine. Yeah, that's the ticket. Well, they should have left the doctor there and then his son go get the medicine. But then you need the love story with him and Dora. and Yeah, and he needs somebody to be a, you know, cannon fodder. <laughs> and that's the other thing. How many people actually survive this film? Not many. No. Yeah. Not many. It's okay, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Kill them all. It's fine. Hey, it's good to have a horror movie with some carnage in it. True. It's true. And it is the 70s. Well, no one was safe. If if I had to judge this movie just based on the film catalog of the 70s from Hammer, this is probably my second favorite so far. You Twins, know why that obviously, is. is number one. It's because you <laughs> haven't seen Vengeance of She yet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this movie's on my top five list, definitely, but... At the same time, out of my top five list, if one of them was subject to change and be bumped by something else, this one may be in it. I think this would actually fall to my number five with Twins bumping up to number four. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, I think it's within my top 130. No, it's my top. <laughs> it's. I do appreciate the chances. I like seeing some experimentation come into play. I just feel like it needed a little bit more. A little bit more work. But I dug it. I'm glad we we finally covered it again. 
And uh, like I said, the Blu-ray is gorgeous. It looks good. Although the Blu-ray is an example of what happens when you take some of these older movies and try to uh, uh, up-convert them for blue or remaster them for blues. You start to see the seams. The Tiger Lady. Um, she's pulling a Linnea Quigley with the front. <laughs> yeah. She's wearing a Barbie bottom, so you can't see anything on the front. Although you, you see her eyes. seam. Yeah. <laughs> um, at, there's one moment when she kisses the Tiger Lady trainer. Tri- Tiger Lady trainer. And you can definitely tell she's wearing a bald cap. That makeup blend is not good. So you start to see some of the seams that Phil might have been a little bit more forgiving about. But now we're nitpicking. Now I'm nitpicking. So, well, I'm glad Casey brought this one uh, to show for the brought this one to the show because I don't know if I would have watched this if I hadn't been a part of the show. I enjoyed it. It's do you not have the blue? No, I don't. I thought I did, but I don't. I'd recommend the blue. Um, like I said, it's gorgeous. It looks good. And it's got a ton of special features, including a making of documentary by Ballyhoo. So I would recommend it. Not and, to cut you off, but oh, that that's quite all right, and it is available uh, right now on Amazon for eighteen bucks, something like that. But I, I did enjoy it. It's not going to be top of my list. I I don't. It won't be one that I'll go back to anytime soon. But I'm I'm glad I watched it. I didn't I didn't dislike it. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Did we do your movie justice for your birthday, Casey? Yeah, I think we did all right. Yeah, I think this uh, shook out better than Vampire Lovers did. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now I am the only one who has not had his top five covered on the show. Hmm, we have to fix that. Well, you have birthdays too, so that's true. That's true. But I always pick something different for my birthdays. Which one? Which one are you saying you haven't? Fear in the night. Yep, that's the only one left. Yeah, looking at the top fives, everything. Else has been covered, and that's your number five here in the night. Yeah, which is so good because it's got Peter Cushing. Although I do want to see Scott Bayo on a Hammer film now, <laughs> in the worst fucking way. <laughs> well, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. So that was Vampire Circus. I hope people enjoyed the conversation. Kind of the different approach we took. I'm pretty happy with it. It got Scott more involved in the conversation. So yeah, I think it looks it's good, and we actually. Break down the film some more. So I enjoyed the new format myself. So I yep. hope you listeners did. Definitely. And if you didn't, go start your own damn show. No. If you <laughs> didn't. <laughs> That's how we get nominated for Rondos. That's, That's what right. we <laughs> That's the stuff right there. That's the stuff. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, what is coming up next month on Down Place? I had the website up here a second ago. Die, die, my darling. That's right. Is next. And none of us have, have you seen that, Casey? No, I haven't. I'm excited to. Okay. It's got a good cast. And the website, 1951 Downplace, will be updated by the time this episode goes out uh, to reflect the new schedule, the adjusted schedule, since Casey was out last month with his Tiger Women and we did a feedback episode last month. So we'll make some adjustments there. Right, Scott? Yes, I just noticed that I forgot to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, if you were tuning in expecting to hear the Pirates of Blood River, A, why didn't you listen to last month's episode? (laughs) And B, Pirates of Blood River is now going to be our January 2016 film. Double (laughs) R. And we're replacing it with Pirates of Penzance. 
I am the very model. I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> Thank you, um, Animaniacs, for that. <laughs> but yes, Die Die My Darling will be next month. Uh, for May, we have Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Uh, June, June, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Yes. Uh, July is uh, no she. Of she. <laughs> is our listener pick month. Then uh, of she. Just wanted to remind people that have voted already, and if you have voted for Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, those votes don't count because that's our October film. So please, if you voted for that film, head out to the Facebook group and change your vote. To Vengeance of Sheen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to miss making fun of Vengeance of She once we cover it. See, even Scott's accepted that it's going to happen. (laughs) Just go with it. But then I have a feeling that we're going to go to outer space for our next film to make fun of after today's episode. Oh, man. Moon Zero Two looks like a winner, man. Yeah, it does. The props and the costume, the production design look amazing. And the opening song with the, with the song title. I just love it. With the title of the movie actually being sung. Not just you don't hear it in your head. It's like Moon Zero. To, it just sounds amazing. So we have the listener pick month in July. Uh, August, straight on till morning. September, a challenge for Robin Hood. October, Dracula has risen from the grave. November is my birthday pick, and we're going to go way back to the beginning with Phantom Ship. With Bela Lugosi. Ooh. Which I can't wait to, to cover that film. I got to see that. Um, in fact, this is the first film on our list that I've actually seen before. I get to see that at a, <laughs> a um, Monster Bash Hammer show. And I'm really curious to see what you guys think of this one. Then following that, December 2015 is Derek's birthday pick, and we announced it on the last episode. Derek, what are we doing? We're going to go to one of the TV episodes. So Hammer did a few different series, House of Horror, House of Suspense. And so we're going to look at the episode titled The House That Bled to Death from their Hammer House of Horror TV series. This is available on DVD as a box set. So you can find it there. I've not seen this one. I've seen a couple of the episodes. But the title, come on. Hammer film <laughs> called The House of Blood of Death. Sure, the title sounds a little bit more amicus than Hammer, but still, I'm excited to dive into that. And then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, next January is The Pirates of Blood River. Arg. <laughs> I'm going to have to learn more pirate slang before then. Ahoy me, mateys. <laughs> I'll work on my Captain Jack Sparrow impersonation. How about that? (laughs) But you have heard of me. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all coming up. If anybody has any thoughts about those movies or any movie that we've talked about here on the show in the past. Any movie, even like Clockwork Orange and non-Hammer films we talk about? Hell, why not? Sure. (laughs) They we'll can't. just sit on the voicemail for like three or four months anyway and then wait until somebody calls in sick and do another feedback episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to – oh, 
sorry, you wanted to know how to get in touch with us, you can... <laughs> You can call us at area code 765-203-1951. That is a Google voicemail number, which will shut you off at three minutes. So be warned. If you have uh, longer thoughts, you can send those in an email to podcast at 1951downplace.com or record a wave or an MP3 file and send it to that same email address. You can also find us uh, at our website at 1951downplace.com, where we have all of our old episodes um, for your listening pleasure are there. We also have the SpeakPipe app on the website. So if you want to record directly through the website, you can do that as well. Uh, just send us a voicemail that way, and it works. Well, at least it did for yes. the one we got. We got two that way last time. Did we? Yep. Also on Twitter, which I don't know if any of us really – check but we also have a facebook page and group and that's pretty much it i think we're good here are we ready to sign off we already mentioned so. scott Bayo was mentioned in the intro we've already talked uh, about peter cushing a couple of times yeah. so casey can be found on bloody good horror and what else are you doing these days are you still doing the other shows or cinema fromage yep. and uh, which is my new show with my wife uh colleen where we discuss uh, b movies direct to video stuff we've got rules in place it's got to be a flick that neither one of us have seen and it can't have been, had a theatrical release so it's been pretty fun you it's all pretty much streaming that. stuff uh, a lot of streaming stuff, a lot of direct, vi- you know, video stuff. Uh, but yeah, mostly streaming. So it's good times. So uh, pr- pretty oh, low budget. Along those lines, last month when we did the feedback, motherfucker. So along those lines, last month when we did the feedback, somebody wrote in and asked where they can find a bunch of the Hammer movies, and Scott and I were drawn a blank when it came to streaming movies because I mean we're oh, physical media kind of guys, but you're more of a streamer. Uh-huh. Are there many Hammer films available streaming anywhere? Not a lot. There's some. Uh, there's a few, a handful maybe on uh, Netflix. Uh, I honestly don't know what Amazon offers because I haven't used their service. But there's a couple of them out there. Uh, it's not. It's hard to get deeper into the catalog though with them. Okay. Out there. Now, now I'm confused. Uh, which one of you two is talking now? You guys sound so much alike. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that was another voice or piece of feedback yeah. we got is that you two sound alike <laughs> I, I don't i don't hear it do you casey no that's okay i mean one of us sounds really smooth and sexy and the other one most hysteric hey <laughs> <laughs> i've been told i've sounded worse so than me well yeah, i've been told i've <laughs> sounded like worse things so oh okay okay <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that's where Casey can be found, Bloody and Horror, and Cinema Fromage. Yes. So, and I also still have my. Uh, I, unfortunately, with my absence from this last month, it's affected all of my shows. So, I've been off for a couple of weeks, but uh, the Instamatics can be coming back too, where we talk about uh, stuff on Netflix Instant Watch, so, which covers all genres. So, there's that too, but that's also a Bloody Good Horror. This is where you can say where you can find one of us, Casey. Where can I find one of us, Casey? You son of a <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Say goodnight, uh, Gracie. Scott Derrick Scott Derrick are also out there. Scott, where are you at these days? <laughs> we should have planned that better, huh? <laughs> this is again why we're nominated for a Rondo Award. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey. Quality. They nominate for content, not organization. <laughs> is that how that works? <laughs> Man, I hope so. <laughs> 
Well, I think I heard in there somewhere that I was asked where I could be found at. So um, I can be found at Disney Indiana podcast that I do with my wife where we cover all things of the uh, Disneyverse, including uh, Marvel and Pixar, the Muppets, (laughs) all sorts of stuff. Oh, I got the giggles. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Dr. Giggles, where can you be found? I'm on the giggle cast. Uh, is there a giggle cast? Monsterkidradio.net. We talk about the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listen to it. The Love podcast it. that Casey can't be on. He was on <laughs> it once. That was For enough. 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, actually, I do want to have Casey on this year and we keep talking about it, but I've been not mentioning it lately because he's been working so hard with his tiger, tiger lady. He says that about once a year. So I, I do. No, we've got we've got a Bigfoot movie in the mind in mind. A we Bigfoot do. Yeti movie that we're going to cover. So <laughs> it'll happen. It'll happen someday. I do, I do love me some big feet. So you know what they say about guys with big feet. I was not going to go there, but they wear big shoes. <laughs> what were you thinking? I, I, I wasn't going to say anything as I stared down at my size thirteen shoe. Anyway, <laughs> oh lord, <laughs> and you have tiny feet. So before we start comparing <laughs> shoe size, yes, <laughs> I'm going to join the circus. All right, please don't be the tiger lady. <laughs> I don't think I could wear the slot A into tab B or whatever the tab B into <laughs> insert slot B. tab A into slot B. Thank you. <laughs> and we end there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can end on Scott's tab. Come on. Come hey, on. we just talked about redoing the format, not redoing the ending. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Why the hell was Thorley Walters laughing so goddamn hard at the mirrors? I don't know. Was he slow? Was he drunk <laughs> that day? I don't understand. That <laughs> yeah, I never get that much joy from Funhouse mirrors. He sure did. Yeah. It had to be that hair. <laughs> oh, Thorley Walters. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe I look like that. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it wasn't just a laugh. It was, uh, you know, we the, should the, end on that now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paul, Paul, it's... <gasps> Alice. Who are you? How do you know my name? Frankenstein Circus box office. Are you here calling about the Scott Bayo tickets? <laughs> nice. <laughs> 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 <laughs>